Turn with me this morning to Psalm, or sorry, to Lamentations, chapter one. Beginning a new series this morning through this book of Lamentations will uh, take us through the next few months, uh, I think. And I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses, but before I do that, I'd like to just talk about this book a little bit and and, uh, introduction to this book and to this series. The first thing I want to say is, I think in more ways than one, I feel keenly that I'm not the person to preach this series. Uh, I've never heard a series in my entire life on the book of Lamentations. Um, I can't remember a single sermon I've heard. I may have, but I don't remember that either. Uh, Like many American Christians, I haven't given this book a lot of attention. Um, Sorry to say, having now studied it uh, more recently. Uh, Even more than those reasons, uh, Lamentations deals with deep grief and suffering, almost unimaginable suffering. That's what this uh, book is, wrestling with horrible grief. And I feel far more inadequate than many people would be to speak on that, that subject because of a relative lack of grief and terrible suffering, uh, relative to, to many of you even, I'm sure. Many could speak more richly, more authoritatively to that subject. And yet, uh, this is not my word. Uh, it's not my experience or your experience that's definitive for life and for truth and for hope. And in some ways, those of us who maybe can't relate as intimately, um, experientially, to the depth of grief in this book, uh, needed even more, uh, that we would be the more prepared to wrestle through grief uh, with faith and with hope um, and love when, it, when, when that grief comes, as it will. Uh, a book that largely inspired me to uh, preach this series, to wrestle with this book, is one by uh, C.J. Williams, who was a professor of mine in seminary, uh, and I'll be drawing from his book significantly in weeks to come. But he offers this theme for the book of Lamentations, uh, maybe sort of a, a conclusion uh, of sorts. And I think I have this on, on the half sheet in your bulletin, along with some other references and quotes I'll use. But here's, here's the summary. God's people can find hope in the midst of any trial because they have a gracious Savior who bears their sins and sorrows. And so I'll be hoping to find and to preach uh, that as, uh, to myself as much to, as, as to anyone. Uh, today, we want to consider uh, in part in these first 11 verses uh, the cause of this grief of this book, uh, which in this case was the Israelites' sin, rebellion against God. But first, I want to note three things about this, this book as a whole, uh, three things about the book of Lamentations. First is the setting. What, what gave rise to this great lament here? Well, it's Jerusalem. Uh, being destroyed. Uh, The Babylonians uh, have come in and killed many and carried many others off and destroyed the city. And this happened in 587 BC. And so the book expresses the horror and the deep grief that that was to to, to Judah, the area around uh, Jerusalem. Describes that both uh, outwardly and physically, the destruction of it, uh, but also spiritually the significance of it, which was that it was, it was a judgment that God allowed against them because of their rebellion. Um, the book comes immediately after, as you can see, the, the book of Jeremiah, uh, which is all about Jeremiah warning that this would happen, right, and grieving that Israel wasn't, wasn't turning back to God. 
Um, it's, so Lamentations doesn't mention Jeremiah, but it's also traditionally attributed to Jeremiah as the author. And there's, there are good reasons to believe that he did write it and, and really no good reasons to think it wasn't him. And it's, it serves then as something of an epilogue to the book of Jeremiah, uh, where he's anticipating and warning about this event. It happens, and then Jeremiah uh, laments, but also through this book leads his people to great hope uh, and trust through God, as we'll see. Um, Jeremiah was known as the, the weeping prophet, uh, just, just based on the book of Jeremiah uh, alone, uh, because of his grief over Jerusalem. The second thing I want to note about the book is its organization. So the, the book of Lamentations is five poems, five complete poems, and it doesn't always work out this way in, in our Bibles with the chapters as they're labeled, but they, they correspond exactly uh, to the five chapters, uh, these five poems. Um, and the poems are high, and, and the whole book is highly and purposefully and fascinatingly uh, organized and arranged. So in, in a few ways. One is that the book of Lamentations is a chiasm. A chiasm, that's, that's a Hebrew literary device where uh, the, the first item, and sometimes it, a, a poem itself can be a chiasm or a larger passage, uh, the book as a whole um, is a chiasm. That, that's where the first item and the last uh, are parallel. They address the same thing. And then the second item and the second to last are parallel. They address the same thing. And then, and then so on, however long it is. And you can see it's sort of a, a sideways uh, triangle, obviously drawing attention to the middle, uh, the middle of the literary work as, as the focus. And so a, a chiastic poem or a book is not... Uh, like most of our literature, which, which builds and builds to the end. There's a climax or the main point at the end of the poem or the end of the book. Uh, the, the, many of the psalms function like this, where the, the, the emphasis is, in fact, right in the middle. And so that's what we'll find here in the book of Lamentations. Chapter 3 is the center and the focus. It's the, the longest chapter. It's exactly three times longer than, than chapter 1, chapter 2. Um, and the pinnacle is the hope that's expressed right in the middle of Lamentations chapter 3 uh, in verses that are probably the only verses that many people know at all from, from the book of Lamentations. Um, exactly 100 years ago, Thomas Chisholm wrote a famous hymn called Great is Thy Faithfulness, a uh, line there. And most Christians know the following verses about the fact that God's mercies are new every morning. Uh, for many of this, this is all we know of Lamentations, but that's, that's right at the middle, right at the pinnacle uh, of, of the book. Um, and that's, that's the, the focus and the conclusion. Uh, a second thing about the organization of the book uh, is that it's, uh, each of the poems is an acrostic. An acrostic, of course, is uh, an alphabetical poem. So each, each new line, each verse, begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it doesn't show up in, the, in English, right? But that's, that's how it is in the Hebrew. Uh, each of these poems, except for, cha for, for chapter 5, so it's the first four poems that are acrostics. Um, each of them has 22 verses. Um, chapter 3, the verses are three times longer, uh, but it's still an acrostic. 22 verses in each of the chapters. Um, it's not the only acrostic in the Bible. The, the other, there are others, several others. The most famous, of course, is Psalm 119, uh, which is basically a collection of 22 psalms within a psalm, uh, each of those 22 beginning with, with a different letter, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 letters, uh, unlike English. Um, 
So uh, Phil Riken com- uh, summarizes that, that Lamentations uh, demonstrates elaborate artistry and, and uh, arrangement. Uh, all the, the, the chiasm of it, the acrostic, the five poems. Uh, wh- why, is it a, why, why maybe is it organized so highly and beautifully? Um, well, maybe one thing points to the purpose, that the fact that there's an overarching purpose under a sovereign God in this catastrophe for Jerusalem. And more broadly, a purpose to grief and suffering uh, generally in any, any of his people's lives uh, under a sovereign God. The last thing I want to note by way of introduction here is that we want to see Christ in the book of Lamentations. Um, that's maybe not as, as readily done or easily done as some other places in the Old Testament. It's not a book that's quoted or interpreted directly in the New Testament. Um, but even though it's not as immediately obvious, perhaps, I think Lamentations points us powerfully, and if we know where to look, even clearly to the person and work of Jesus. And this is how Jesus taught uh, his people to see the Old Testament, uh, to see him in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes the Old Testament is avoided uh, in our day because we don't read the name Jesus or, or various reasons are given. Jesus, I think, would scoff at that kind of a reason. This is what he told his disciples in Luke 24. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's, that's just a way to summarize the whole Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, it's all about me, he told his disciples. In John 5, he told the, the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He said, you, you rightly love the scriptures, but, but they're all about me. You're missing that. Uh, and then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, tells us that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, ours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. That is, the, the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, Peter says, it was the spirit of Christ working in them about the grace that was to be yours through him. That was their topic. And then he goes on to summarize that uh, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So there's Peter's summary of the Old Testament. It's about the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. So uh, I, I trust we'll find that richly in the book of Lamentations as well. So let's read together or listen as I read uh, Lamentations 1, the first 11 verses. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who once was once great among the nations. She who is a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because, because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. 
Her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old, when her people fell into the hands of the adversary, and no one helped her. The adversary saw her, they mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom you have commanded that they should not enter your congregation. All her people groan seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. We'll end our reading there. If you look at number one on your outline. Again, the, the immediate cause of Israel's suffering, J- Jerusalem's suffering that's lamented here, is uh, the Babylonians. The Nebuchadnezzar and his army came and destroyed everything and destroyed their lives. But this chapter, even in the first chapter, here, mentions the ultimate, the more pressing cause of this event. Verse 5, for example, says, It's because of the multitude of her transgressions. And then verse 8 comes back and says, Jerusalem sinned greatly. Uh, Jeremiah spent years pleading with the people to repent, as as God had many, many times before, to, to turn back to their gracious God. But over and over again, they refused to listen. Or they would turn back for a time, and God would show mercy, and they would turn away again. God was patient over and over again, but he warned that, that his patience, in a sense, would run out if they kept up this, this wholesale and faithfulness, turning away from him into gross idolatry and, and sin as a whole nation. They would forfeit their, their right to the, the land, their blessings by his covenant. In, in Judah's more recent history, in response to Jeremiah, they, they declared Jeremiah a traitor, and they beat him. And they threw him in prison, and King Jehoiakim of Jerusalem <clears throat> took all of Jeremiah's writings, 23 writings of the word of God to them, and burned it all. It's just one incredible example of their defiance against God. Verse 5, again, their multitude of transgressions. That, that could be translated uh, of rebellions. That, that's the connotation there, against God's covenant and his grace, over and over again. And so as verse 5 affirms, God himself has allowed this as as a judgment against them. Uh, One aspect of Judah's failure uh, comes out in verse 7, where it says, In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things. Uh, These precious things are mentioned again in verse 10. What what are these precious things? In verse 10, and, and this phrase is used in Isaiah as well, they're clearly the things of the temple. It's the temple and and all the means by which God had given his people to to commune with him, to understand his grace and to receive forgiveness and to receive his word. I think broadly, the precious things of Judah are are their relationship with God, all of the blessings and privileges of that, the privilege of worshiping him and, and 
receiving his law, knowing what is good and true and beautiful um, and, and his means of grace. And so verse 7 is saying only now that, that their lives have blown up are they missing those things. They, they've been taking them for granted. They've been trampling on those precious things that God has given to them. They've neglected their relationship to God and the, the provision he made for them to commune with him and to know his promises and know his, his grace and his guidance. And so in large part, it's a, it's a fail to remember and cherish the grace and the provision of God that's brought this judgment. There are huge lessons for the, the church today. What are, what are precious things for us, for the church uh, the book of Hebrews, over and over again, as a major theme, would have us understand that our, our, our salvation, in a sense, is, is far more precious. Knowing Christ, knowing who he is, knowing who we are in him. Uh, the Old Testament's were saved, Old Testament saints were saved in him as well, but we, we know him. Uh, we know more fully the work of the Holy Spirit and so on. All the means by which we commune with God in Christ are our precious things. The, the privilege of worshiping him in his spirit of hearing his word, having his word, uh, praying through Jesus as our mediator, um, his sacraments uh, confirming to us uh, his love for us is a precious thing. Uh, celebrating the Lord's Day, um, just his church and fellowship as, as a family. Uh, are you cherishing these things? Are these your precious things? Uh, or do these get pushed aside, taken for granted, because other things maybe are actually more precious? Uh, each of us will give an account one day to the Lord for how we, uh, our stewardship of the precious things, the means of communing with him that he gave to us uh, to, to grow in grace. Uh, chapter 1 mentions another failure to remember, uh, in a sense. Verse 9 says, she did not consider, or that that's really a uh, a synonymous uh, a synonym for remembering. She didn't remember her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. Um, Jerusalem failed to, ch- failed to cherish, to remember, to live by the future promises of God. Not only what, what she had right then in communion with God, but the future promises of God. That's why this is all crumbled so spectacularly, Jeremiah says. Uh, you know, aren't we astonished when Someone who seems to have it all, you know, a, a celebrity or wealthy athlete or someone, someone who has everything going for them, lots of wealth and you know, their future laid out for them easily. When, when they waste it all by chasing drugs or, or somehow some otherwise willfully wrecking their life. Uh, Carly and I not long ago watched a documentary on the, the life of Whitney Houston. It was a great example of that. You know, fabulously talented, fabulously wealthy, and, and wrecked it all through those uh, drugs and, and men and, and various things. More astonishing are those who know the Lord and his precious promises and squander that uh, for temporary and, and lesser pleasures. So Lamentations is all about Jeremiah, or Jerusalem, sorry, suffering judgment from God for her persistent sin. That raises a question as, as we study this book, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you? Part of the response in Lamentations, as we'll see, is, is repentance. Uh, that Their suffering prompts repentance. Does that imply that when believers suffer, we need to then wonder, which, which sin did I commit yesterday or last week that, that has caused this and that I need to repent of? 
And the, the short answer is no. The Bible doesn't teach that, that suffering always has this direct correlation to a particular sin. That's not generally how, how it works. Jesus was confronted with, with that very question, in essence, when, and I'm paraphrasing here, but some people came to him and said, look at this tragedy that happened to this person. Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? It must have been somebody. And Jesus essentially said it doesn't, doesn't work that way. We're all sinners. We're living in a broken and fallen world. But even though there's not a direct line to draw generally between our, our sin and our suffering in that way, um, any kind of suffering and grief uh, is always an occasion to consider our sin, uh, to confess. That's, that's one of the lessons we can take away from Lamentations, even though it's a very particular occasion a particular occasion of suffering for a particular reason. Uh, it's always an occasion, even ours, to consider our sin. Why is that true? One reason is that God uses grief, God uses hard things, especially uh, to grow us, to show us our sin, to teach us to, to trust him more, to teach us to depend on him more. This is why Paul makes this crazy statement in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why does Paul say that? What does he go on to say? Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces hope, a real and deep hope. Um, James says the same similar thing in, in James chapter 1. Another way to put this is that God uses grief and hard things to discipline us. Another reason why it's always, even though it's not necessarily from a particular sin, it's always appropriate to repent. Uh, Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Another reason suffering should call us to repentance generally, as one writer puts it, is uh, sin and suffering are not unrelated in this world. Uh, Even if we rarely see them so closely connected as cause and effect, there would be no tears or grief in this world if it were not for sin. So it's always appropriate, uh, trials are, uh, appropriate call to self-examination and how God might be chastening us in love, uh, what he might be teaching us. Uh, Lamentations teaches us, calls us to ask, though our circumstances are different, it calls us to ask, how will we respond to suffering? How will we respond to hardship? Uh, Here's, uh, C.J. Williams has this comment on, on this topic in Lamentations. He says, it is, not hard for, it is not for us to interpret our hardships so much as it is to respond to them. The only way that frail, sinful creatures can respond to a holy, sovereign God by turning from our sins and returning to him. And to put the point differently, the humbling grace of repentance casts off the mantle of victimhood. This keeps us from just pitying ourselves which only leads to bitterness and casts ourselves as sinners upon the mercy of God, which leads to hope. Uh, We'll come to Lamentations 3, verse 40 in several weeks. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Uh, So that can be a theme for us as well. Look at number two on your outline, uh, Judah's sin and its consequences. So I've just argued the Bible doesn't teach that you got sick or lost your loved one or your house was knocked over by a hurricane or whatever it is because you told a lie yesterday or lost your temper. It, it's not generally that kind of a one-to-one 
cause and effect in this life. But, on the other side, sin does have consequences. Uh, Sin is destructive. Not the Babylonians coming and destroying your city, the direct judgment of God, but sin often has natural consequences, sort of built into this fallen world. Right? Lies create distrust in your relationships. Or, or sexual sin will ruin your marriage. Or drunkenness leads to car wrecks and other terrible things. And, and we, could, we could list all kinds of things. We, we all have examples in our lives that we've experienced. And this passage points us to some of those consequences of Judah's unfaithfulness to God. Their, their total neglect of his word year after year. There were sort of natural consequences that flowed from that. And so I want to give you four examples that, that come out in this chapter briefly. The first is broken fellowship. Uh, broken fellowship. It's pictured in several ways, uh, even right at the beginning. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Uh, loneliness and isolation come from sin and ignoring God's word. Uh, the verse goes on. She, the she here, the her, the she is, is Jerusalem in chapter 1. Uh, she has become like a widow. Uh, she's compared to a widow a number of times. It brings to mind the fact that God often used marriage, the marriage relationship, as a picture of his relationship to his people. He was their, their perfectly faithful husband. And she, Jerusalem, has left her perfectly faithful husband for the pleasures of the gods of Egypt and for Assyria and what she thought Assyria could give to her. And what was the result? She ended up alone and betrayed. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers, all the others that she chased. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. That's what sin does. It betrays us. Uh, it leaves us empty in the end. And Judah found that the nations around, around her didn't, in fact, care for her. Um, were not faithful and couldn't deliver like her one true God. Um, Rosaria Butterfield, in one of her books, has a, a graphic illustration for the Bible's teaching uh, that sin will betray you. She says it at first it seems harmless and you know attractive, sort of like a fluffy tiger cub. Might be fun to play with, coddle, but it's a wild animal. It grows up fast, and one day you wake up to find it eating your face off. Jeremiah pictures a lonely person who has lost fellowship with God and others and has no comfort. That's a theme here. We'll come back to that theme next week as well. But verse 2, again, she has none to comfort her. Uh, Verse uh, 9, she has no comforter. Verse 16, there is no one to comfort her. Verse 7, that was verse 17. Verse 16, because far from her is a comforter. Uh, And verse 21, there is no one to comfort me, Uh, over and over again. There's there's no ultimate comfort apart from God and his his presence and his promises. One of the great blessings of the covenant community, the church, then and now, is, is people coming alongside of each other, bearing each other's burdens, and encouraging each other, and, and sin isolates us from other people in many ways. And Judah's people lost that blessing. Um, a second consequence is a loss of peace or rest or, or security, various ways we could put it. Look at verse 1 again. 
um, describes this lady, Lady Jerusalem. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She was like a great lady of blessing, and now she's become a slave. And verse 3 says it this way, um, that she has found no rest. Uh, she's lost her rest. What, is that, what does that mean here in this context? What is biblical rest? It's, it's not just putting your head down, taking a nap, not that kind of a rest. Uh, it's, it's the security and peace of fellowship with God. Um, assurance of his love and his care and his presence and his guidance. That, that's the rest that the scriptures speak of, that Jesus spoke of. Uh, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, apart from God, there's only restlessness, aimlessness. Uh, we're slaves to our own passions and sins. Paul in Romans 6 describes sin as, as slavery. God is allowing Judah to experience a, a literal slavery here in, in Babylon that pictured the sin that they had chosen. Uh, the last line in verse 3 puts it, it this way, interestingly. Um, she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. The New American Standard has the word distress here. You may have a different translation or a note that says something like tight places or narrow places. Uh, The the related verb in Hebrew means to squeeze or to constrict something. Uh, And the, the figurative meaning is very much like English idioms we have, like someone being in a tight spot. Or we say that person's backed themselves into a corner. Um, obviously there's a somewhat literal reference on the one hand to Judah's enemies pursuing her to a place of no escape, but this highly figurative poem certainly also has in mind what Judah has done to herself through her sin. She's put herself in a tight spot. Uh, One commentator puts it this way, it was her willful sin that finally led to a place where there was no way out. The consequences of her sin were unavoidable. It was a, a tight, restricted spot. Uh, sin is restricting, it's enslaving, it's, it's despair-inducing in the end. The f- faithful Christian life is different. It's not different in that we don't face hard things, uh, hardship, but in that we're not in a place of, of despair with no way out. We're, we're really not, even though it may feel that way, we're not in a tight spot in that sense. God has given us, Peter says, all things necessary for life and godliness. Uh, He provides a way out of temptation, the New Testament says. Uh, And then the Psalms, a number of times, use exactly the opposite language to speak of the blessing of a relationship with God. Psalm 18, for example. He brought me out into a broad place. You see, you understand the meaning of that then. He he rescued me because he delighted me. He he brought me into a broad place. Psalm 118, verse 5, even more interestingly, uses both both idioms. It says, from my distress, and that's the same word, from my tight spot, I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. A large place. Uh, thirdly, a third consequence, a natural consequence of sorts that we see here is their, their spiritual vitality was weakened or even lost. Uh, a large part of that loss was their faithful, vibrant worship. Uh, disappeared in Judah. Verse 4 says, The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. Those are the the great feasts of Israel that 
that pilgrims would come to, uh, to feast and celebrate God and his grace. No one's coming to Jerusalem to worship. No one's coming to Jerusalem to feast. The streets are empty. Uh, they, they're, they're, uh, there's a forced abandonment of the streets now, uh, but it was willful before. Uh, Israel's unfaithfulness in worship was, was a problem for centuries and centuries that the prophets addressed. They accommodated the, the nation's gods around them. They uh, imitated their worship and culture. And the result wasn't that the nations were more friendly with them and accepted them or their life got better somehow. The result was simply that true worship became empty and perverted and God's own person was twisted. And they became just more like the sinful world and less like their true God. And they neglected the word of God and they lost their their highest uh, privilege and blessing, which was meaningful, heartfelt, true worship of God. There are uh, many lessons there for the church as well. We don't have time to explore right now. Then fourthly, a fourth consequence is their loss of leadership in the church. A loss of leadership in Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, her priests are groaning. Uh, they're not well. In verse 6, her princes have become like deer that have found no pasture, and they have fled without strength before the pursuer. Uh, God's design then and, and now for his church was that his people would have faithful and prayerful and sacrificial and, and bold for the truth leaders. And the leaders often reflect the spiritual health of the church as a whole. Uh, here we read of the leaders in Jerusalem. They have found no pasture. That might indicate they, they see nothing for themselves uh, in Jerusalem and in its God. They're, they're not feeding on the word of a, of a self-giving, gracious God. Uh, they're living for themselves. And so they're pictured as weak, cowardly deer. They've just run away when trouble came. There's no reason for them to stay. This is sort of a, sort of a chicken or the egg problem. Thinking about Jerusalem's failure as a whole and their leader's failure. You know, do the leaders go bad first, um, or, or does the church as a whole abandon the word of God and then create uh, weak and ungodly leaders? Well, either way, these, these things go together, right? Um, the church needs leaders not first who are, are charismatic or entertaining or uh, skilled in the ways of the world or well-connected or, or things like that, but uh, who are feeding on the word of God, who, who serve like shepherds uh, to, to their own sacrifice and that was not happening so these are some of the consequences in jerusalem that we'll we'll see will these will come up again as we go through the book of lamentations well there's there's no obvious hope or joy in our passage today is there um that and that characterizes much though certainly not all of the book but i want to point to a glimmer of hope which which points us to where the book will take us uh in the third point in your outline there And in in doing that, I want to introduce a theme in the book of Lamentations that will become part of of the theme of the book of Lamentations. Uh, It's part of the literary arrangement. There are three voices that we'll hear in in Lamentations that that provide the the words of the poem, three different voices. So the first, and this is what we've read primarily today, is the narrator. The narrator speaks in the third person about Jerusalem, separated from Jerusalem in the third person. Uh, the other voice we'll hear is, is a second-person plural, uh, the collective we and us, as, as if everyone in Jerusalem was, was speaking together about their suffering. Uh, that's, that's more later in the book. Uh, and then the, the last voice that we hear is a singular voice, 
uh, a single person, speaking in the first person. I, me, my. And in chapter 1, what we've read this morning, uh, we read narrator, 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 and then suddenly the singular voice breaks in, interrupts almost. That's how it goes through the book. And the lone speaker breaks in, first in verse 9, the end of verse 9. See, O Lord, my affliction. The enemy has maligned himself. And then in verse 11, at the end of what we read this morning. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. And then the, the, that singular voice will speak more as we'll read next week. But there's a similar prayer that this voice gives in verse 20. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. And the narrator in that singular voice particularly will go back and forth. In this book, the individual speaker, there, there's a lot of debate among scholars about who the voice is. Is, is it just Jerusalem, the narrator sort of stepping into the person of Jerusalem, personifying this lady Jerusalem, um, or, or is it something other? Um, the individual speaker is not said to be God. God is not really quoted, interestingly, in the entire book of Lamentations. And yet this speaker, this, this speaker speaks for the people is one of the people, in a very clear sense, is, is suffering with them. But the speaker also speaks to them and encourages them, and gives them direction, and also seems to stand in their place. And one, one commentator suggests that by the time we get to chapter 3 in Lamentations, the, the identity of this, this singular speaker is the question of the book. Who is this? And we'll talk a lot more about this in coming weeks, but I want to pull back the curtain a little bit now to say that I'm convinced that this is, it's in this voice that we hear the voice of Jesus in this book. That we see the grace of God, the response of God uh, to the cries and the sufferings and, and the repentance in this book. That we see in this voice a God who enters into the sufferings of his people. It's a person who's suffering with the people, but also for the people and giving them hope and direction. And bears their burdens in the person of Jesus. That's, that's the story of the whole scriptures. The Son of God would eventually come and become man and bear as a judgment in, in a final and justifying way the sins and the consequences of sins of the people. You think about how Jesus did that just in terms of what we've read here this morning. Jesus would be betrayed and abandoned by his friends and isolated without comfort on the cross. And I want you just to see finally what the request of this lone speaker is repeatedly here in this first chapter. Uh, verse 9, see, O Lord. And then in verse 11, see, O Lord. And then verse 20, see, O Lord, for I am in distress. See, or your translation may have look. Look, Lord. There, there's theological significance to that one word prayer. Look. Looking is what God does in the Bible just before he shows mercy. He sees the need, the humility, the repentance of his people. It's not that God wasn't paying attention or needed someone to turn his head or get his attention. But he waits for his people to cry out for help. Uh, to depend on him. And, and his fatherly love and mercy is aroused. So this is one of the first signals of hope in Lamentations. When, when God's people cry out for him to look, he does. C.J. Williams gives an illustration. Imagine you're in a, a crowded room, maybe much like this room will be in a few minutes, where we're all mingling and talking, and then a, a child cries, screams. What do all the parents do? Maybe the grandparents, too. They look, right? Is that my child? 
Does he need help? And, and in a faint and imperfect way, that reflects the fatherly compassion of God uh, toward people who call on him. Look, Lord, see our suffering, see our need. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 32, expresses this precisely. And David says, look upon me and be merciful to me, as is your way with those who love your name. So because of the person and the work of Jesus, we know that God does look, that God does show mercy uh, to all who call on him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word this morning and this um, challenging book. We just ask for your grace that through your Holy Spirit in the weeks to come, you would help us to see your grace. <clears throat> help us to see better our need, to learn better how to express our need and our griefs uh, through this book. And through that, to find real hope um, and grace. Uh, we pray all this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.